It's Sunday, the 7th of December, 2003. 13-year-old Daniel Morecambe waits at an unofficial bus stop under the Keel Mountain Road overpass in the Wombai district of the Sunshine Coast, Queensland. He's on his way to the Sunshine Plaza shopping centre for a haircut and to buy Christmas presents for his family. The bus he planned to catch breaks down and the replacement bus fails to stop. The driver radios the depot for another bus to pick him up, but by the time it arrives, Daniel is nowhere to be seen. I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island. Another true crime podcast. It was a warm sunny day this Sunday afternoon in Wombai. Wombai is a town located on the Sunshine Coast, about an hour's drive north of the Brisbane CBD. With a population of just over 2,000, you may have driven past it while visiting the Big Pineapple Tourist Attraction. With three weeks before Christmas, 13-year-old Daniel Morecambe decides to go to the Sunshine Plaza shopping centre for a haircut and to buy Christmas presents for his family. For a 13-year-old boy to catch a bus into town, it wasn't considered a risky journey as Wombai was a safe community. Often Daniel would walk down to the bus stop with his twin brother Bradley on their way to the plaza. This Sunday, Daniel planned to catch the 135 bus to the shopping centre alone. But it broke down around 1.45pm, about 750 metres short of his stop. A replacement bus arrived shortly after 2.15pm, But as the service was now running late, it was decided the replacement bus would continue as an express service to the Sunshine Plaza, which meant it wouldn't stop at the unofficial request stop. However, the driver did notice Daniel waiting and signalled to him that another bus was on its way. A smaller shuttle bus followed later to pick up passengers along the route. This next bus arrived only three minutes later, but Daniel was nowhere to be seen. In fact, Daniel would remain a missing person for the next eight years. Later that afternoon, at around 4.15pm, Denise Morecambe, Daniel's mother, started to become worried that he had not returned home and drove along the route he would have taken. She saw the broken down bus being attached to a tow truck, but she could not see Daniel anywhere. Later, Daniel's father, Bruce, drove down to see if he was on the return 505 bus and at 5.30pm when it arrived at the bus stop, he wasn't on it. Bruce and Denise then contacted police, but as true crime fans will know, missing teenager reports were not treated in the same manner back then as they are today. Police did start a search, and this would intensify over the next few days. Daniel's parents and police would then appear on radio and television, pleading for any information about the disappearance of their son. When he left home, 
He was wearing a pair of navy blue shorts, a red Billabong brand t-shirt and a pair of grey Globe brand sneakers. On the 7th of December 2003, the Homicide Squad at the State Crime Operations Command of the Queensland Police Service became aware and ultimately involved in an investigation concerning the disappearance of Daniel Morecambe from the Sunshine Coast. Witnesses would report that they saw a child matching Daniel's clothing and appearance at the underpass at about the time the first bus went past. Some witnesses saw a male in the area at that time standing back from Daniel. At least one witness, Josiah Cox, who gave an, a statement to police on the 19th of December 2003, described a white four-wheel drive near that point. Police spoke to known or suspected child sex offenders who lived in the area at the time. This is where they would first interview Brett Peter Cowan, 34 years old. He'd just been released from jail in the Northern Territory and was living nearby. He owned a white four-wheel drive vehicle, a 1990 Nissan Pajero. Cowan was born on the 18th of September 1969 in Bunbury, Western Australia. His mother Marlene was a housewife and father Peter Cowan was a Vietnam vet. The family would move across to the other side of Australia to Queensland and Cowan would grow up in the Brisbane suburb of Everton. It was a strict household and Cowan with his three brothers would attend a Catholic high school. He would drop out in year 10 and would have many menial jobs throughout his late teens. Cowan was a regular drug user, taking pot, speed, cocaine and LSD. So during the police interview, Cowan told police he left his home on the 7th of December 2003 at about 1.30pm to drive to a friend's house at Nambour to collect a mulcher. It took about half an hour to drive from Cowan's house to his friend's place. He estimated he had returned to his home about 2.30 to 2.45pm and described a route that took him through the underpass where Daniel disappeared. He said he did not observe any people or vehicles at the underpass when he drove through. He voluntarily gave police a DNA sample and a photograph. On the 22nd of December 2003, police spoke to Cowan's then-wife, who estimated that he did not arrive home until at least 3pm. They also drove the route that Cowan said he had taken. They spoke to the friend who'd loaned him the mulcher, and he estimated Cowan had been at his house for five minutes only. Investigators formed the view that there was 45 minutes of unaccounted time in Cowan's alibi. They also looked at one of the comfit drawings that had been prepared from descriptions given by various witnesses on the bus and formed the opinion that the drawing looked like Cowan. On the 23rd of December 2003, police spoke to Cowan again. During this conversation, Cowan said he arrived back home after collecting the mulcher at 2.30pm. The next day, he consented to an examination of his car, 
the Mitsubishi Pajero. Scientific examination did not reveal any evidence linking Cowan with Daniel's disappearance. At this stage, investigators had several persons of interest and Cowan was not considered a prime suspect. Cowan was not further interviewed until July 2005, more than 18 months after Daniel had gone missing. During this interview, Cowan told police that he was definitely back home by 3pm, but it could have been as early as 2.30pm. He confirmed to police that a landline call from his home made at 12.50pm would have been him calling his friend just before he left to collect the mulcher. A phone call made from his mobile telephone to his home at 12.58pm indicated he had left home somewhere between 12.50 and 12.58pm. He confirmed he had seen the broken down bus near the Wombai turnoff. He did not mention seeing or visiting any other person while he was away from his home. Police asked him at the end of the interview, if you had abducted Daniel, would you tell me? To which he replied, probably not. The case was going cold. However, Bruce and Denise Morecambe would not let this happen. In December 2005, they set up the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, initially to help in the search for their son, and now it helps educate children on how to stay safe in a physical and online environment, and also to support young victims of crime. Calm was again interviewed by police on the 14th of September 2006, when queried about his estimates of time for his movements on the 7th of December, Cowan, for the first time, told police he had visited a drug dealer, Sandra Drummond, to buy cannabis. She was at her house with her partner, Kevin Fitzgerald, and he said he was there for a good half an hour. He said that he had not mentioned this earlier as he had not wanted to implicate her. At this stage... Police started to see Cowan as a prime suspect. You see, he'd had previous convictions for abducting and raping little boys. Cowan's first molestation conviction came at the age of 18 on the 5th of December 1987 when he was charged with molesting a seven-year-old. Cowan had been performing community service at a park next to a childcare facility when he lured the child into a public toilet. While trying to strangle the child, Cowan was disturbed by a teacher that had been calling out looking for the boy. Cowan told the boy never to tell anyone what had happened or he would find him and kill him. He was charged in 1989 and served three years in prison. On the 28th of September 1993, he raped a six-year-old child outside a Darwin caravan park, leaving him seriously injured in the boot or trunk of an abandoned car in the bush. When it was realised the child was missing, the park's residents called police and mounted a search of the area. Amazingly, the little boy was able to find his way out of the car and made his way back to the caravan park. At first it looked like he was hit by a car, but a few days later it would be established that he was raped by Cowan 
who lived just a two caravans down from the boy and was well known to him. Calm was sentenced to seven years in prison and served four and a half years of his total sentence. So at this stage, he's raped two kids and only served about seven years in jail, then released back into the community. Also during one of his interviews, when asked if he abducted Daniel, he replied, It couldn't be me. I like six to seven year olds. Daniel was 13. So Cowan's starting to get caught up in his story to police. If you're going to lie, you need to have a good memory. As of the 12th of December 2008, the case was going cold and a total reward of $1 million, 250000 from the government and another 750000 donated privately had been offered. The privately donated portion of the reward expired at midnight on the 31st of May 2009. On this day, the Seven Network reported that a known pedophile, Douglas Jackway, could be of interest to the police. Jackway had been released from prison in 2003, one month before Morecambe's disappearance. This naming of a suspect caused a lot of issues. This publicity also prompted civil civil liberties groups to call for the laws banning media outlets from naming people linked to criminal cases. You see, even though the person named may be a scumbag, if they didn't do it and they'd already done their time in prison for previous offences, they still have the right to not be named and targeted by vigilantes, especially in cases with such emotion attached to them. In July 2009, the parents of Daniel called for a coronial inquest in the hope of finding answers to their son's abduction and murder. The Morecambe said that after five and a half years, it was time for an inquest. Of particular interest to the family were several criminals who had told police they know who killed Daniel and where his body was buried. A coronial inquest was held the beginning of October 2010 and concluding in April 2011. The inquest called as witnesses the bus driver who had failed to stop for Daniel Morecambe at the Keel Overpass location where he was waiting, a woman who had seen a man loitering near Daniel Morecambe and several persons of interest, including Cowan. While the coronial inquest was in session, detectives instigated a cold case review of Cowan which reviewed all the material available and they also carried out investigations themselves. They could not rule Cowan in or out being involved in the disappearance of Daniel, and so they decided to instigate the Uzcut technique on him. Uzcut stands for Unsolved Serious Crime Undercover Technique. So Cowan is flown to Brisbane for the inquest. Here, counsel assisting the coroner, asked him questions about his family and his work, hobbies and health, and then asked him about his criminal history, in particular his two sex offences against children. Cowan said neither of them involved violence. They also asked him about the police investigation of him with regards to the disappearance of Daniel Morecambe and that after the first interview with police, 
that they had concerns in relation to a period of time that they were having difficulty accounting for. This was between 30 to 50 minutes from picking up the mulcher to getting home that police noticed was unaccounted for in his first interview. Three years later, Cowan would change his alibi to include visiting his drug drug dealer during this time, knowing it would be hard for his dealer to remember either way. Police never really believed this. Counsel explained that the role of the inquest, as well as seeking to find out who it was that abducted Daniel, was also to attempt to rule out those that they could rule out. And in regards to Cowan, if you can establish to his honour's satisfaction that you're not involved, then it's likely that will be the end of it. Counsel put to Cowan the various matters which made him a strong suspect in the Daniel Morecambe abduction, such as the rarity of this type of crime, his criminal history for similar crimes, that he resembled at least one of the comfit sketches prepared as a result of descriptions by passers-by in the bus that day. Counsel then put to Cowan the following. So what we're left with is this situation where you, a violent sexual offender with a proven history, one of the very few people around with a proven history of kidnapping boys and assaulting them in such a way that it could easily lead to their death, is right on the scene, right at the time we're interested in with Daniel Morecambe, and on your own version, discounting this fanciful alibi that you've come up with three years later, you've got between 35 and 50 minutes that you cannot account for. That time must be accounted for, Mr Cowan. Now the list of coincidences, as I put to you this morning, are of course rubbish, if looked at in the terms of you being unlucky or similar. The fact is that all of those things, this incredible coincidence, just could not be expected to occur in the ordinary course of events, could it? Cowan replied no to this question. After his appearance at the coroner's inquest, Cowan flew back to Western Australia. A Queensland undercover police officer who used the name Joe Emery sat next to Cowan on the flight back to Perth. They struck up a conversation and Cowan gave Emery advice about cars and accommodation in Perth and gave him his mobile telephone number. The Unscut operation was now underway. The unscut strategy involved the playing out of various scenarios so that undercover police appeared to be part of a crime gang which allowed Cowan increasingly more involvement in the criminal activities of the gang. Members of the gang, whose structure was hierarchical, stressed to Cowan the necessity for trust, honesty and loyalty. The gang did not actually engage in any criminal activity but appeared to engage in loan sharking, gun running, drug dealing, blackmail, burglary, prostitution and diamond smuggling. Cowan was told that the big boss of the National Crime Syndicate was Arnold and introduced to the idea that that there was nothing that could not be fixed and that there was a lot of money to be made by being involved with the gang and that, that there was a lot of work coming up. 
At this stage, it looked like Cowan would be recalled to the coronial inquest, and so this was weaved into the unscut operation. Cowan was told that he would have a meeting with Arnold, the big boss, as the syndicate wanted him to be involved in an upcoming operation, which would pay him $100,000, but there were concerns about him that needed sorting out first. Cowan was constantly reminded that the fact that he hadn't been cleared of involvement in the Daniel Morecambe case, it was a big problem in being part of the gang, and that Arnold could fix anything. At one stage, Cowan was present when one of the undercover operatives was given a new identity and passport and told to go to London and lay low for a while. This was to reinforce to Cowan that his problems could be made to go away and that it would be good times if he was accepted into the gang. Cowan was told that a subpoena was going to be issued to him from the coroner's inquest. Cowan said, that's been and gone. Cowan was then told that it was a fresh one, but that's something we can fix as well. So Cowan was being groomed to be part of the big job the gang was planning, and that he could get $100,000 for his part in it. If he was to be accepted into the gang, there had to be nothing hanging over his head that could bring heat to himself and therefore the other members of the gang. Arnold, the big boss, would meet with him and discuss his current situation in regards to the Daniel Morecambe investigation and that they had the power and resources to make anything go away. On the 9th of August 2011, while meeting with one of the undercover cops, a phone call was made which requested that they go to the Hyatt Hotel in Perth where the meeting with Big Boss Arnold would take place. Now this meeting can be viewed on the internet but the audio quality is at times poor, so I won't strip any of it out here. If you go to Aussie Criminals page on YouTube, there's a 44-minute version you can watch. Here, Arnold makes Cowan feel relaxed and outlines that his gang are happy with him and that he fits in well. They want him for an upcoming big job, but there were concerns about the ongoing Daniel Morecambe investigation. Arnold told Cowan that the gang's success relied on trust, honesty and loyalty. Arnold told Cowan that he had paid good money to do due diligence on him before he let him into the gang and that he had been reliably told by his informers that he knew that he did the murder. He stressed that the people he had paid this money to were very reliable and that he didn't care what he had done He just needed to know what it was so he could fix it up. At this stage, Cowan denied he did anything to Daniel Morecambe. Arnold told him that he'd got some information that morning that Cowan had done the Daniel Morecambe murder. Arnold said, And like I said, it doesn't bother me at all. But what concerns me is that I need to. I can sort this for you. You know, I can sort things out. I can buy alibis, I can get rid of stuff, all that kind of things that need to be done, I can do. But I need to know what I need to do. Do you know what I mean? So if you say to me, look, I had nothing to do with it, that's not what I've been told. And that brings me in a real dilemma, in a crossroads, 
because I want to move forward with what we're doing. But until I can sort this out, I can't because you're too hot. As Cowan had already been told he would get 100000 for the job, he'd already started looking at cars to buy and ways he would spend the money. Cowan eventually confessed to picking up Daniel, murdering him and dumping his body. Arnold then pressed him for more detail as he had to know what he had to clean up. Cowan went into more detail on how he saw Daniel standing by the bus stop that day. He drove behind the bus stop and parked his car. He stood behind Daniel and as the replacement bus drove past without stopping, he walked up to Daniel and asked if he wanted a lift to the shopping centre. Daniel accepted and went off with him. As they drove off, instead of going to the shopping centre, he drove to an abandoned house not far away and here he started to molest Daniel. But Daniel panicked and so did he. So he strangled him and then took off his clothes and dumped his body in a ravine. He then drove off and threw his clothes into a river as he passed over a bridge. At this stage, Arnold assured Cowan that he could get everything fixed up for him and that they would delay the big job a few days to get things sorted out. Cowan had never told anyone about what he had done to Daniel before this time. Cowan had no remorse at all when he confessed, explaining the events of the day in such a matter-of-fact way. Arnold told Cowan that he would put him up in the hotel for the night and would get a couple of the boys to go to Queensland with him to the location where he dumped the body. Once there, they would make sure there was no evidence left behind that would cause problems in the future. Arnold also advised he would also sort out the coroner's inquest so he would finally be free of any investigation. On the 10th of August 2011, Cowan flew to Queensland with undercover police officers and over the next few days showed them where he murdered Daniel, where he dumped his body and where he disposed of Daniel's clothes. On the 13th of August 2011, Cowan was arrested at the site where he had said he had disposed of Daniel Morecambe's body. Cowan was taken into custody and charged with Morecambe's murder and other offences, including child stealing, deprivation of liberty, indecent treatment of a child under 16 and interfering with a corpse. It must have come as a bit of a shock for Cowan. I wonder what went through his mind as police suddenly surrounded him, guns drawn. At first he probably thought Arnold would be able to fix this up, but then he would have realised the gang members were actually part of a sting. He'd kept his mouth shut all this time, but now his greed had got him to confess that he'd murdered Daniel. Without that confession, police would never have had enough evidence to convict him. Now he had told them exactly what had happened that day and where it had happened. Extensive examination of the area around the Greenhouse Mountains occurred over the next several months. In total, 17 human bones were recovered in an area close to where Cowan had indicated he left Daniel's body. These would later be found to be the bones of Daniel after DNA analysis. As well, police found a Globe brand sports shoe of a size 
model and colour consistent with a shoe box in Daniel's room. When the shoe was examined, it was found to have wear patterns consistent with patterns on other shoes known to have been worn by Daniel. A search of the Kuchin Creek near the bridge identified by Cowan resulted in the location of a pair of rip curl shorts and the remnants of a pair of Bond's underpants. Those items were consistent with clothing known to be worn by Daniel. On the 7th February 2014, Brett Peter Cowan was ordered to stand trial. The trial at the Supreme Court of Queensland began on the 10th of February 2014. The prosecution closed its case on the 7th of March and 116 witnesses gave evidence and over 200 exhibits were tendered in evidence. Cowan pleaded not guilty and declined to give evidence. On the 13th of March 2014, Cowan was found guilty of all charges. On the 14th of March, Cowan was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. He was also sentenced to three and a half years imprisonment for indecently dealing with Morecambe and two years for interfering with his corpse. Those sentences to be served concurrently. Judge Rosalind Atkinson said, I don't think you should be released in 20 years' time. Cowan appealed his sentence, but this was dismissed. Recently, Cowan has been left permanently disfigured after boiling water was thrown over him in prison. Adam Paul Davidson poured boiling water from an urn into a mop bucket. This was thrown over Cowan, who was then beaten with the mop and bucket. Adam then screamed at Cowan that this is for Daniel. Cowan was rushed to hospital with burns to his head, face, back, chest and upper thighs. In court, Adam Davidson explained that he did it for the people. So, without the incredible undercover operation to get Cowan to confess, he probably would have never been brought to trial at all. It was the determination of Bruce and Denise Morecambe that kept the case from being forgotten and going cold. Bruce and Denise founded the Daniel Morecambe Foundation that was initially set up to help find Daniel, but now the foundation, established as being a lasting legacy to Daniel, has two main aims, to educate children on how to stay safe in a physical and online environment and to support young victims of crime. You can support the foundation by going to www.danielmorkham.com.au So, True Crime Islanders, another episode has come to a close. Before I go, I would like to thank all my listeners and for their support and kind words. This month is Tripod Month. Tell at least one person you know that doesn't know about podcasts how to find, subscribe and listen to them. Also, I'd like to let you know about a new podcast that is about to air called Podcasts We Listen To. They have a Facebook page you can join that not only has fans as members, but also podcast creators as well. So you can get on there and discuss your favourite podcasts. 
It covers all genres, not just true crime. So don't forget, you can stream or download episodes from my website, truecrimeisland.com, or subscribe via iTunes or one of the many podcast applications out there. So don't forget to delete your browser history. This is your host, Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island, another true crime podcast.